PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. week on PA Books, Thomas Brasino and George Marshall's Memoirs of My Services in the World War, 1917-1918. As the United States entered World War I, George Marshall was a captain who had been in the Army for 15 years. He would finish the war as a colonel, having proved himself as a gifted staff officer. Joining me to talk about Marshall's experiences during the First World War is Tom Brasino. He is an associate professor of history in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. Tom, kind of set us up here for this period of Marshall's life. Where was he in his career? So George C. Marshall, uh, at this point in his career, is a uh, he's a captain, as you said, a uh, fairly junior rank in, in the military. Uh, he had uh, gone to Virginia Military Institute, uh, which was not the the premier way of, of going into the Army. It's still kind of it's still West Point at this time, although that's sort of changing. Uh, the, the Army had become more of a meritocracy uh, in this era, it was starting to become this way, and, and one of the ways he did that was through schooling. Uh, he had gone through the Command General Staff College and made a, a reputation for himself there. It was a two-year program. He made it into the second year and did really well. Um, he gets the reputation at the time of, of uh, this, this phrase, this word that keeps being applied to him as a wizard uh, at, at military stuff, um, at some of the higher level stuff. and. Uh, at this point, uh, he, had, he had gone around uh, to multiple positions, but at this point, he's an aide-de-camp to a, a general named J. Franklin Bell, who is a kind of forgotten guy in, the, in, in American uh, military history, although uh, a very prominent uh, person. Uh, he started off working uh, as an aide-de-camp for, for Bell out in San Francisco in the Western Department, then he gets transferred, they get transferred, and he goes with them to the Eastern uh, Department of the East in New York City uh, at, the, at the start of the war. So that's where he is. So. The war begins, the United States declares war, and does, he, does the work that he's doing change at that point? Yes, it uh, changed for everyone. Uh, it's, a, it's a dramatic, dramatic uh, uptick in, in effort for everyone at this point, um, and uh, sort of keeping in mind that uh, the United States Army is very small uh, and, and in, many ways, uh, in many ways unprepared, but not in all ways, um, and, and we can talk about that as we go, but uh, yeah, so he is... Um, uh, what they're trying to to figure out is how to get over into Europe, and and start building up what would become the American Expeditionary Forces, the full forces of this. Uh, Marshall doesn't go with the first, the very very first crew, uh, John Pershing and his main guys who start the the, the AF. John uh, John Pershing is given command of the American Expeditionary Forces, or what would become the American Expeditionary Forces. They're not sure at first uh, how this goes, and uh, starting in, in from uh, in April of 1917 when we declare war. Uh, but by the summer, uh, they start heading overseas, uh, and Marshall wanted to get into the fight as, as best he could, and Bell having some pull, uh, but himself too sort of senior and, and broken down to be one of the guys to contribute in the fight himself. Uh, could, the best he could do uh, was train forces at home, Bell could, and then he, uh, he recommends Marshall for uh, a role in, in what would become the first, uh, the first division. At this point, they're just called uh, the they're not called the Infantry Division yet, they're just called the First Division. Uh, and, and Marshall wants and gets a role as the Operations Officer for the First Division, and he heads out and sails to, um, 
and sails to uh, Europe in July. Now, he, he does write a memoir of his experiences during the war, and uh, in reading that, one of the words that, that I see uh, throughout that is preparedness, and the opposite of that, unpreparedness. And uh, can you talk about the preparedness movement and what that word would have meant at the time? Yeah, so it's a, it's a complicated thing, and I think this goes to this, this point of why George C. Marshall in World War I is such a fascinating character. Uh, you know, we have a tendency in the United States to sort of filter everything through World War II. World War II is our big, our big war, uh, as opposed to Europeans, World War I is sort of formative for so many of them. Uh, but for Americans, uh, World War, we tend to do this for World War II, so we have this problem. And because George C. Marshall is so prominent in World War II, that we tend to put, uh, we tend to put uh, everything on his, his efforts uh, in World War II, and that, that World War I is prelude to that. And it is. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but that kind of needs some explaining. Uh, and let me put it this way. If all George C. Marshall had ever done in his career is what he did in World War I, uh, then he would still be a very prominent, he'd be a very important figure, but no one would have heard of him. Um, so we kind of go back and, 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 and look at that. Uh, if we go back and look at the World War I stuff, it, it both helps us explain what he's able to do in World War II uh, later on in his career, um, but it also it helps us understand what happened in World War I better, and one of those things is preparedness. Uh, the United States military is often dings, is dinged in World War I and dings itself about preparedness issues, but the preparedness problems are sort of focused at uh, the higher levels and then the lower levels. And that kind of requires explanation. Uh, it, it requires explanation because war has become so complicated. Industrialized warfare has become so complicated that it's very difficult for uh, most observers to really understand, even students of war. Uh, we have a tendency to, to think of war as, you know, general makes decision and then whole armies move and do things. It's a very Frederick the Great Napoleon model of, of, of warfare, but it's not that way anymore. Uh, it's it's uh, wars fought at all different levels and involving all sorts of resources, all of the resources of the nation put into these vast, complicated field armies, uh, these big uh, theater organizations like the American Expeditionary Forces uh, and what that is. So the preparedness uh, is, is the primary problem is at the, at the highest levels, the War Department in particular. Uh, they're not really organized well. There have been attempts at reform uh, in the first part of the 20th century to, to improve the War Department, but at the time, it, those really hadn't come into fruition. Uh, the War Department is kind of fractured. They haven't really planned that well for this. They certainly hadn't uh, planned in much detail for going to Europe and fighting because that wasn't their major problem at the time. They were thinking about defending the borders, Mexico and Canada, and dealing with like the Philippines, uh, holdings in the Philippines and, and Cuba. Uh, but those are those are much lesser problems and different problems than going to Europe and, and fighting a war against uh, major uh, your modern militaries uh, like you find there on the, on the Western Front. So they're not really prepared for that, how to ship them over there, how to, how to train everybody, how to get them uh, into the fight. The other way they're not prepared, like I said, was at the bottom. Uh, because the Army's so small, they don't have enough troops. Uh, they don't have enough trained people who know how to fight, even in the most basic ways, even at the smallest levels, even how to, you know, how to, how to fire rifles and, and work in teams. Uh, let alone dealing with artillery, tanks, which are becoming a thing, air, uh, airplanes, which are becoming a thing now in this in this war. So, um, but where they are prepared better than than they usually uh, get credit for is what George C. Marshall had done, which is prepare to to lead large organizations, large military formations in war. They spent a lot of time in the schools thinking about that. They they had studied European warfare. They had developed their own theories and their own doctrine about how to do a lot of that. Uh, and that's a big, complicated problem, uh, how you lead field armies and corps. I, guess, I suppose it's probably worth reviewing for people that this is the kind of 
the structure as it goes down, but you start with a sort of some sort of theater command. Uh, the, the, Air, the American Expeditionary Forces is one of those, uh, led by a general headquarters. And then you go down to field armies, uh, corps, divisions, uh, brigades, regiments, uh, battalions, companies, down to, down to platoons and squads. Uh, and so what we're talking about is really at this uh, division, corps, uh, field army level. They had put a lot of work and thought into that, and they were pretty well prepared. And George C. Marshall's one of the best prepared guys to do that. Um, now, he's too junior to lead those, most of those formations at the, at, uh, during the war. Uh, but what we, they're so complicated uh, leading these things that you really need to have really uh, well-prepared staff officers. And now they don't have a lot of them, but the ones that they do have are pretty well prepared for that. And George C. Marshall's the best example of all in that. Talk a little bit about uh, promotions and rank at this time. Uh, he had been in the Army since 1902, and he was a captain. Compared to today, that's probably a really long time to, to be in, in that position. But once the war begins, promotions would come a lot faster. Talk about what it's like to be a career Army officer at then. Yeah, so the, it's, it's primarily a seniority system uh, with a little bit of leavening of meritocracy in there, uh, but especially promotion to general officer is, is difficult. And again, it's probably worth going that you, you go second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, brigadier general, so one star general, major general, uh, lieutenant general. And in the United States uh, military, we don't really have four stars at this point. Uh, Pershing becomes uh, the first one of just a general officer. Uh, World War II, we'd come up with five star generals. Uh, so you, there are a limited number of slots for at every rank, uh, especially for general officers. Uh, usually they have, people have to come to their mandatory retirement age and then they're replaced on the list and it's a very difficult uh, path and, and sometimes people are jumped. Uh, Pershing jumped people who were ahead of him on seniority list, uh, sort of famously un under Theodore Roosevelt. And there is some talk about Marshall going to that, but um, he, do he, doesn't, he doesn't get the jump as much. Now everybody gets a jump in the war, but these are all temporary ranks during the war. Uh, so a whole bunch of people get moved up because, like we said, we have this big, vast organization and you need to have uh, senior level people to, to both command and then be on the, the staffs of, those, of these, these big formations that we're talking about, the AAF, the, first, you know, the armies, the field armies, the corps, and the divisions. Um, but so everybody gets pushed up, everybody who has some experience gets pushed up, and a bunch of people who don't have experience get pushed up into these senior ranks. And this is one of the problems, is where do you put those people, the people who know how to fight and lead a regiment in a fight, do we, do we take somebody like Marshall who has the experience to do that and put him on, in, in command of a regiment, or is he so important uh, that we need him and, and so experienced that we need him at a higher level somewhere? Uh, and that's the problem he kind of runs into. Uh, and as it turns out, he gets, he gets sort of stuck uh, in, in his rank because uh, he's so good at his job that they won't, uh, <laughs> he's so good that they won't promote him. They won't put him to positions where they can promote him. They won't move him to line positions like command, in command of, of units. So they don't put him in charge of a regiment. They don't put him in charge of a brigade. They don't put him in charge of a division. Um, and even, even the staff position he has is uh, that he ends up in his final position as the, as the operations officer for First Army is a colonel slot. It's not a general slot. So he's doing work, the work of many of his uh, peers who are in brigadier general spots, and he, but he doesn't have one of those spots except for right at the, after the armistice. And then and at that point, they freeze all promotions, and he's stuck. So at the end of the war, he ends up going back to uh, being a captain briefly, and then they make him a major. Uh, so that it's a fascinating thing to have these people who are in, who are in command of these huge formations going back to these to their pre-war ranks, to their permanent ranks. 
it's a very it's a very complicated story about how rank structure works in the military, but that's kind of the thumbnail version of it. So as Marshall and the first division are, they arrive in France, uh, what do they do at that point? What what needs to happen for this division to be combat ready? Okay, so the first division has to. Uh, they, they have to, well, the number one thing to, to understand about the United States military at this point, is, and this is commonly misunderstood, is that they're very much a learning organization. Uh, they're, they're very focused. Uh, many of the leaders have kind of mentioned, you know, where they get prepared, one of the places they get prepared to lead large formations is in, uh, is in the schoolhouse, right? So they study a lot about this, and then they, they run maneuvers and exercises as best they can with the limited number of people that they have in the military pre, uh, prior to World War I, but they still managed to do some uh, pretty large uh, efforts. I mean, in one of these cases, you know, this is kind of going back here, but George C. Marshall does uh, maneuvers in the Philippines, and you know, he's an, he's an exo and uh, executive officer. Uh, he's sort of a, a junior guy who ends up taking over for a whole formation and planning the whole thing, and his, his, his fitness reports end up uh, having multiple, he has multiple people. I'm, I'm unaware of anybody who had these. Uh, one of the questions on fitness reports is, uh, would you want this person to serve for you again? And on multiple occasions, and this is mind-blowing, he had people say, yes, but I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather serve for him. Uh, promote him past me, you know, jump him, he's a captain, you should jump him and make him Brigadier General right now. Um, and you know, so, so uh, in any event, uh, the first division becomes the kind of seedbed for the AEF. Uh, it's the first division that's out there. For a minute, Pershing thinks that's all, all he's going to command. They're not sure how many people are going to be able to go, and then the war effort ramps up, and he has a whole theater to command. Uh, but in, uh, they end up putting a, a guy named uh, William Seibert in charge of, of the first division. He's the commander. And then they have a whole uh, staff uh, and, and subordinate commanders who end up being the senior people throughout the AAF. But this is kind of their test bed for it. Uh, but as a learning organization, what they do, a lot of the leaders of the AAF and First Division, uh, they spend uh, the first months of the, uh, of the war going and learning from the British and the French, uh, studying from them, setting up training, uh, training areas uh, where they can uh, practice these uh, ideas about what's, what's going on in World War I uh, with their own bent on it. Uh, their, their view is that, uh, that the European powers uh, both through sort of exhaustion and habit, uh, are sort of stuck in this trench warfare, this, this uh, stuck in this limited way of fighting, and they don't want to stay that way. Uh, they, they think that in order to win, they need to be able to be more offensive in how they fight. Um, and, and so, uh, anyway, in any event, uh, Marshall is part of this process of learning, surveying the Western Front, trying to figure out where they're going to fight uh, when they get into the fight. Uh, he uh, helps out along with this. Um, I can't emphasize this enough, it's a team effort. Uh, Marshall is very good at being part of the team. Um, he's got a uh, more limiting role as, as the G3, uh, the operations officer, what would become the G3. Um, this is the modern staff structure they invent in World War I the, in, in the AF. Uh, he's in charge of operations and training, so he has to do that. Uh, and so, they, so he goes out and, and works on that, uh, on the training effort for First Division uh, at first. Uh, but it takes a long time takes a long time. Uh, this is, you know, to sort of put this in perspective, uh, by the end of, of 1917, so declared war in April, by the end of 1917, there are most, uh, there are most of, of four divisions that are in the fight. I think I have the numbers here uh, somewhere. There's only 180,000 U.S. troops that are in Europe at this point. Um, there's four divisions they're fighting, and then there's a lot of some, some, they're starting to uh, bring in support troops, uh, people who can run the ports and the railroads and, and, and do all of the, you know, the shipping and the, and the logistics for moving forces around. 
um, but they have a very limited number who are in the theater at this point uh, in the war, and it's very slow, and this happens to coincide with uh, probably the worst part of the war for the Western Allies. Uh, the, the Soviet Revolution has happened in, in Russia. They're going to drop out of the war. The Italians uh, take a pretty bad beating in, in Caporetto and the fighting in 1917. Uh, there are a couple of French and British offensives that fail pretty miserably. Uh, so it's, it's the very much the darkest time of, of the war. And, and what started with great hope of the Americans coming into the fight uh, looks uh, looks pretty dim and, and disappointing at this point. Uh, this goes back to the War Department problem, uh, inability to ship troops over on our own, uh, requiring uh, British shipping, primarily some French, but pr primarily British shipping to get American troops over there and then get them trained up, and it's a, it's a mess. Um, along the way, uh, so this is, this is really important, uh, the Americans make the decision after studying the, the Western Front, studying the French and the British in this fight, the Americans make the division, decision to make really large divisions. Um, they have 28,000 man divisions. These are roughly twice as big as any European divisions are. Uh, this is the kind of, this is the, you know, the main combined arms formation, um, primarily artillery and, and, and infantry uh, in this period. Uh, sometimes cavalry, but not so much in World War I, where you're uh, using horses. And, and uh, the Americans decided to make them very large because they think that they, these divisions, when they look at the problem of the Western Front and the trench warfare uh, as it's set up in this very fixed positions, they know that they need fighting power. And so they set up these very large divisions to do this stuff, which creates you know, additional problems in, in, how to, in how to fight. But this is their solution to it. Uh, but they take a little bit longer to build up. Uh, and with the shipping being as slow as it is, it's, it's not going uh, particularly great uh, for all of this. Um, you throw into the mix, because it's not go going great, that the French and the British especially uh, would really like the Americans to just be manpower. Uh, so we end up with this uh, big controversy, this amalgamation controversy uh, that happens in World War I, uh, which is that the, the British and the French would really like the Americans just to be manpower. We want you to fill in our forces that are depleted. Uh, you know, we, have, we already have smaller divisions, um, but they're even smaller because they're, many of them are undermanned uh, from all the attrition uh, of the war. And so they'd like the Americans to fill in with the troops and the Americans, um, the guidance that Pershing gets from, from uh, President Wilson and Secretary of War Newton Baker is that, hey, listen, we want to be independent in this fight. If we're going to have a role at the, at the, at the table uh, at the end of the war when we're negotiation, when we're setting up the peace negotiations, we need to be independent. The Americans need to make their separate mark in the war. And, and Pershing takes that guidance and says, hey, so the Americans are going to be a separate fighting army on the front. Um, so this creates all kinds of problems, which in the history have led us to sort of uh, almost forget that the Germans were the enemy in World War I, now the French and the British, uh, because they fight about this repeatedly. Uh, about and, and the British keep, especially the British, keep trying to to push the Americans to come into the uh, come in as manpower replacements for their troops. Um, so, you know, this 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 leads to uh, so, some uh, additional uh, issues. That, you know, what's funny about that debate, though, um, is from Marshall's perspective, he doesn't see, and, and, and really most of the, the guys in the fight, we like the big flashy discussions about this. We like the soap opera fights about this stuff. The British saying the Americans don't know how to fight. They should just be part of our, uh, just be part of our armies. And they do stick with that view. The French less so, uh, because they see a little bit more of the American contribution, and they'll take the American contribution any way they can get it, keeping in mind that the Germans are on French ground. Uh, and they really want them gone. So they'll take the Americans however they can get them. Uh, you know, and I think Marshall, you know, one of the things that happens in this, it's important to remember, uh, 
the Western Front, World War I, as much as we think of it as war-torn Europe, the truth is that the Western Front is, is a pretty small place, right? So um, you could drive, these days, you could drive to most of the active parts of the, world, of, of the Western Front in one day uh, across Europe. It's, uh, it'd be a busy day, but you could do it. And which means that like large parts of France, these training areas in particular, are pretty far from the front. Um, and, and Pershing ends up going to Gondrecourt, or I'm sorry, uh, Marshall ends up going to Gondrecourt uh, to do some of his training. He gets uh, in with some French, a French family that he ends up being very friendly with. And I think this is important because uh, they're kind of welcomed, they're welcomed there, right? The French want the Americans there, the French people want the Americans there, and he sees this, right? He, he, he lives this, that they're very close allies. Uh, you know, for all of the fighting over whether where the troops should go and all, and how the big strategic decisions should work out, at the end of the day, they're still allies and they're still on the same side. He keeps this in perspective. One of the great things about Marshall is that he doesn't uh, have much time for these these debates that he thinks are end up being kind of silly, right? Now, this is kind of silliness and it's a distraction from what we really did. And I think part of that's from being in this training period and being around the French people and keeping in mind what this is all about, which is winning the war as an alliance, uh, and, and and that's the way it turns out. Uh, and so Marshall's perspective is very important on that, I think. Now, there was uh, at one point an, an incident with General John Pershing and Marshall where Marshall perhaps got a little bit ahead of himself for a man of his rank. Uh, can you talk about that incident? Yeah, so uh, Marshall, you know, we, you know, we look at the pictures of Marshall uh, that we have here, and we see him later on. He has a, a reputation as being kind of an austere person. He's almost like Pershing in the same way. Uh, Pershing has this, you know, tended not to show his emotions or his more friendly, his sort of jocular side in public, and Marshall ended up being the same way. Uh, but at the time, but they were both individuals, sort of George Washington-like in, in this case, uh, buffeted by strong emotions, a, a, a very, um, and, and, and Marshall sort of eventually put on a, a, the, a more affected view of being a more disinterested, dispassionate kind of person and more analytical. Um, but this was a good example of this. And, and maybe it's because Pershing was the same way and did the same thing, that he understood that um, when, this ha when this event happened that we're talking about, that, that there's something I kind of like about this guy, Marshall. Uh, and, and what happened in this case is the first division was in training. Uh, Pershing came for a, uh, to see them uh, you know, do a maneuver. Uh, it did not go uh, as well as Pershing would have liked, and, and uh, he was primarily blaming the division commander and the, the, head, the key staff of the division, but he was really after the division commander. And in front of everyone, uh, all of the leadership there, he, he uh, chewed out the, the division commander in front of Marshall, and Marshall took exception to this. Uh, he was still, at a younger age, uh, displayed his passions more often. And so he, so as, the, uh, as one of the, as the G3, as the operations officer, he tells Pershing, he actually tells Pershing that he's wrong about uh, his critique and that he's misunderstanding the problem and, and all of the issues that the First Division is trying to deal with, with all the problems of getting troops overseas, getting them equipped, getting them into the training areas, and what they had done. And Pershing goes to leave and Marshall actually puts hands on him, which is always a, a sort of fascinating, uh, grabs him by his arm and says, no, you need to understand, and, and gets in a, a verbal uh, fight with, with Pershing. And everyone who witnesses this says, and, and Marshall's sort of famous for uh, uh, talking a lot when he got, when he got excited. And uh, so he talked and he, he laid it all out in detail. Uh, but it was all very, uh, very well done. Uh, but, but it was very frank, especially for, you know, for this, uh, 
for this uh, young officer to tell uh, you know, the, the overall commander, General Pershing, uh, what was what. And Pershing, everybody thought the Marshal's career was over. Uh, and Pershing actually ended up turning out respecting it. And in the, in the weeks and months that followed, whenever he went to First Division, he'd go to Marshall and ask him what was going on, what was the real deal. Uh, this is the start of this relationship uh, that Marshall and Pershing that would end up being extremely close um, in the years to come. Uh, so it did not work out that way. And I, I, think it, I think it was because maybe Pershing saw a little, little bit of himself in, in Marshall uh, and that he liked that people were frank with him. And it's much to Pershing's credit, and this happened on multiple occasions where people would, would kind of chew him out uh, from below. And, and he didn't usually punish people for that. He, he, he punished people for inact inactivity. And in this case, it's interesting because pretty shortly after this, he fires uh, Seibert and, and sends him home, uh, the, the division commander himself, uh, which is part of the whole system in, in World War I of, of removing officers who are not active enough, who are not leading in the way that Pershing uh, thinks that they should. Well, that was another example of Marshall's temper getting out ahead of him there, where uh, he was, in his anger that about how cyber was treated, he was set up to be in, into a position of chief of staff for the incoming general, Bullard. Right. But uh, his temper affected that. What happened? Yeah, so Robert Bullard it ends up, uh, Robert Bullard, who's a very problematic character. Uh, I hope that um, people might want to study him. Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting guy, very competent, uh, also a, a, a seething racist uh, about his stuff, and, and uh, kind of an independent-minded guy. Uh, when when uh, Cyber gets fired, Marshall makes, uh, his temper gets a little out of control, and he makes a, a point about saying that he thought that was unfair, how that happened, and, and Bullard thought, well, maybe you don't have the equilibrium to be the, my chief of staff right now. And so Marshall ends up staying as the, as the operations officer uh, when Bullard takes over, but he was tabbed to be uh, the chief of staff. Uh, probably hurt his, his, his uh, progression some, um, but it ended up probably being for the best. So as the first division goes through its training process, it finally does get its opportunity to go into the line in the tool sector in uh, 1918. So at that point, how does Marshall's very much involved in training and, and organizing the division early on, but now that as they enter into the front lines, how does that change his role as a staff officer? Well, uh, there, you know, the first division being the first division, it's, it's, it's well named, uh, ends up being in the fights, uh, ends up being in the fights first. And one of the things that the Americans are trying to do is, is use First Division as a kind of proof of concept for this uh, open warfare way of fighting that they're, they're talking about doing. Uh, and this is where it gets, it gets very, very complicated. Um, uh, open warfare is, is this much derided idea uh, by historians, uh, primarily, I think, based on a misunderstanding uh, of what it is. Uh, open warfare is not just a, uh, a tactical thing. Uh, this is the way it's, it's often misunderstood. In, in fact, it's often misunderstood as Pershing being overly focused on people with, uh, individual soldiers with rifles. Uh, the way we have to think about open warfare is at all levels uh, throughout uh, the AEF. Remember we said it's a big, large organization. I listed all of those, uh, all of those uh, uh, formations, all those echelons of command uh, that go. So think of it this way. Uh, open warfare um, is, is, is meant as sort of a philosophy for how they want to fight on the Western fight in World War I. It's not some thing that would work everywhere else. It's based on their study and based on what they think the French and the British might do, especially the French, if they were capable, if they had the troops, if they hadn't been fighting the war for, for uh, all this time up until now and had been uh, heavily attrited and exhausted by the war. Uh, so, so it's sort of 
uh, starts at the bottom with, hey, we need a bunch of, we need a bunch of uh, individual troops who know how to fire the rifles and move and get after it uh, in the fights. We need squads that fight a certain way. They need to be, you know, they need to be thinking less about, uh, less about fighting in trenches and more about moving and spreading out and, 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 and moving forward. At a little, at higher levels, uh, the same sort of thing happens with with companies, battalions, uh, regiments, and brigades. Uh, divisions it means something different. Uh, divisions, uh, divisions, uh, as we said, they're these big, massive formations. Uh, they're meant to uh, have the frontline guys fighting a bunch of individual troops who are very good at moving forward and using their rifles, fighting as teams, using their artillery, uh, and then. As they fight themselves out, they're replaced by units behind them. So when we say that there are 28,000 troops, they're divided in what's called a square division. They're made up of four regiments. There's two regiments. Basic idea is that there'd be two regiments forward, two regiments behind them, right? And then, uh, so when the first two regiments got exhausted from the fighting, doing all of the open warfare things that they were supposed to be doing at the lower levels, the next two regiments would come up and replace them in the fight. That's the idea of it. Uh, often misunderstood in, in World War I is that uh, the corps are also meant to be squares. Uh, they're also meant to be made up of basically four divisions in the fight plus a, rever uh, a reserve uh, division that's behind. So you'd same thing, two divisions would fight forward, would fight forward. When they became exhausted, they'd be able to be replaced by two divisions behind them. And then you'd have another revision, uh, division that was in reserve that could come in and fill in wherever they needed to exploit uh, whatever opportunities were there. Uh, and then you needed a whole big vast supply system that could support that too. You needed a whole philosophy across the board of how to do that. And that's what they meant by open warfare. It wasn't about troops with, with guns. It wasn't about ignoring trench stuff. It was about understanding the trench problem, which is that uh, the Europeans had done a pretty good job of figuring out how to fight into the first part of the trenches. But when they got there, they had spent so much time doing that that they couldn't figure out how to go beyond, beyond that. And even more problematic, and, and this is where Marshall uh, this is a, a big, long story that happens from the beginning of the war all the way up until uh, all the way up until August, September of 1918, when the Americans, uh, you know, do have an, an independent field army of their own. Uh, is that the tactics uh, develop? They, they expressly write this, and Marshall contributes to writing about this. He uses experience at the lower levels, and then he takes them into it into the higher levels. Uh, as he goes, uh, understanding this philosophy. And everybody kind of understands what, what, what uh, Pershing is trying to do, and because he, he doesn't just develop it himself, so he develops it with everyone else. Um, so that um, by the summer of, of 1918, by August, Marshall contributes this great uh, document called uh, Combat Instructions for Troops of First Army. Um, it sort of lays, and, it, and it lays this whole philosophy out uh, about how they, wanted, how they want to fight. And this starts with the uh, First Division in there, uh, in in their their small problems, which is basically trench raids, starting to figure these things out. Um, what that problem comes down to, though, is, and this is the dilemma of what they have to solve. They have to figure out how to fight into the trenches the way that the Europeans have, which requires this almost this very exquisite, super detailed planning effort, right? So because you know, think about creeping barrages. You use artillery, and your troops have to follow them. You know, 100 yards, 200 yards behind the the artillery as it's moving forward. This requires really strong uh, timing, clear timing. It requires very detailed uh, boundaries of where everybody goes. But as soon as you get there, and you get into the open, you've broken through some of the trenches, and you've got you know some of the enemy in retreat. They're trying to fall fall back to their next lines. Your next problem is, how do you how do you prepare people? who just spent all their time learning how to follow these really clear orders, these very detailed plans. Now, don't follow the plan. We're going to give you an objective that's off in the distance, and we need you to, to figure out the problems on your own. 
we need your units at these lower levels for your problems on your own. Uh, Americans see this as a, as a really difficult problem. They're having trouble getting the troops in. Uh, as they start to get the troops in, they've got to train them for both of those aspects of the fight on the Western Front. How do you fight into trenches and follow orders very clearly? And then how do you, act, how do you operate more independently once you get past the trenches? Um, as it turns out, the Americans think that, that their major effort is going to be in 1919. Um, that's when they think they're going to launch offensive and they're going to have all this, which gives them more time to train. It gives them more time to build up these big cores, to have all the divisions in place, and be able to fight this way, to use this open warfare philosophy that goes from top to bottom. They have troops who know how to do this and have leaders who know how to, how to use these large formations to make this happen. Uh, it's not the way it turns out, uh, in part because of these problems of 1917, because of the collapse at the end of 1917 um, that lead to the, 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 the spring of 1918. And the fight there. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. How is he distinguishing himself as a staff officer during this period? You know, it's, it'd be very easy for him to get lost. And like, like I said, I think the, the most important thing to remember is that the first division is this, ends up being the seedbed. Uh, because it's the only one that's there, they put, all their, they put a lot of their best people there. Uh, names that we don't generally uh, know, hear about now, but are important. Bullard is one of them who ends up being the commander of it. Uh, they have brigade commanders like um, uh, Charles Summerall eventually becomes a brigade commander. They've got uh, staff officers like Campbell King. John Leonard Hines is one of the division command or one of the unit commanders un underneath uh, that division, uh, which means that when Marshall's doing the good things that he's doing in First Division, he's getting to know the people who are eventually, as this as this army grows, as the American Expeditionary Forces grow, they're the people who are in leadership positions all over the place. And because he's so good, uh, he's so competent at what he does across the board. You know, everybody would like to have some George C. Marshall uh, as this fight goes on. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. Um, we can talk about you know, what that means uh, in, this, in the summer of 1918 here in a minute. Okay, well, let's go there. Uh, in the summer of 1918, he does uh, move up from division to the general headquarters. Uh, how did he get plucked out of that position, and, and uh, what new role did he have? Okay, so uh, we have to keep in mind that in the spring of 1918, uh, everybody understands the situation. The Americans are coming. They're coming slow right now, but they're, they're on their way. Uh, they're trying to ship them in. The Germans know this. The Germans have an advantage at this point because the Russians have fallen out of the war, because the Italians are, uh, have, have partially broken, because the British and the French had their struggles in 1917, too. And the Germans know that they're going to have to try to win the war uh, in the spring of, of, of 1918, that they really need to give their effort there. And so they launch uh, what's known as the Ludendorff Offensives. Uh, these, are, these go from you know, March, April, May, and then into the summer, uh, there's sort of multiple offensives that, that General Ludendorff uh, commands, uh, directs. Um, they don't work. This is the short version of it, right? They don't, they, they don't work, although they, ha they show some, some tactical brilliance, but they're not really smart about where they attack, and they can't, really, they can't really follow. And they have that same problem we're talking about. They figure out how to get through the trenches. They're able to actually get pretty deep into the fight, but they don't know how to sustain it, how to build up the fight for it. Nevertheless, it appears that the, the war is in this, uh, and, and there's a crisis on the Western Front, and everybody feels this, uh, this potential crisis on the Western Front. And at this point, you know, two, two big things happen. One is that the Western powers uh, finally actually make a real alliance, uh, military alliance, coalition, uh, and they put 
which the Americans suggested from day one when they get there. They actually put uh, Ferdinand Foch, the, the French uh, marshal, in, in command as the, as the generalissimo. And so it creates kind of unity of command. Everybody takes strategic direction from him. This is an important you know, effect, probably an unintended effect of the German offensives, but it is an effect that happens. Um, and, and the other thing that happens is that the Americans somewhat come off of the, uh, the idea of uh, not amalgamating their forces, not integrating their forces into, in, at least for the crisis. During these offensives, the Americans start to, uh, Pershing says, we have enough divisions around that I can give you, I can give you divisions temporarily, French and British uh, commanders, I'll give you divisions temporarily, and you can put them into the line to help blunt this offensive, and then, but when this is over, I'm going to call them back, right? That's his, that's his idea of it. Uh, so what happens is the first division goes into the line, uh, into the fight. Uh, at first, the American divisions go and replace French divisions elsewhere on the line so that they, the French divisions can go back into the fight. Uh, you have to keep in mind that the American portion of the Western Front, uh, from the initial surveys, is a spot where they thought it could uh, they could have a, a great effect, and it's also a spot where it's that's as far away from the British as they can be, so they could uh, not have to deal with the British constantly asking them for um, for troops. Uh, they didn't really want to be next to the British, so they're next to the French. Uh, the Americans go into the line. The Americans uh, end up going to a place called uh, Cantigny. Uh, Marshall. They do a, a limited fight there. It's kind of it's in a spot where the initial attack was, the initial uh, German offensives were. Um, the uh, American attack goes pretty well and they hold out. Uh, and Marshall does a, it does a good job planning this and setting it up. And the first division, in its sort of debut in the fight, does well enough uh, to show that they, can, that they can contribute and the American divisions can fight on their own. And Marshall has a key role to play in this, uh, which leads us to the summer. Um, after the crisis starts to pass and the uh, Americans are able to start you know, forming corps um, and, and to have them be real things. The, the, the allies under Foch start to launch counteroffensives, uh, and they start to, um, American corps and divisions start to contribute very largely in these. I should keep in mind, too, that part of the blunting the German attacks, you know, the, the second division and third division both go into the line. The second division has the Marine Brigade, uh, and they fight at Bellow Wood, famously, uh, famously there. Um, this is probably one of those myths of World War I that we should always kind of repeat. Um, when we talk about all these big, vast organizations, the Marines primarily made up one half of one division. It was an Army division. They were included in the second division, uh, and they were one brigade of one division, which is half of the, uh, the, the infantry troops of one division. Um, but because of uh, secrecy rules during World War I, you couldn't say you know, which, which American divisions were where in the fight in newspapers. So when you say the Marines were in a fight, you could say the Marines, though, because that was general. You could say the Army was in a fight or the Marines were in a fight. And so when the Marines go into this, there's this impression that, that the Marines stopped the, you know, stopped the Germans at Bellow Wood and, and then clear Bellow Wood afterwards you know, on their own, which isn't you know, entirely true, but that's sort of the myth that comes out of this, and this leads to all kinds of problems later on with uh, Army-Marine relationships. Um, but uh, regardless, the divisions do pretty well in the, in the fight. And, you know, and the interesting thing that happens is what, what was uh, the, the, what had been a crisis in terms of shipping and moving troops overseas starts to become, starts to become a real strength on the Allied side. Uh, by the summer of, of 1918, Americans are coming over in something like an average of about a quarter million a month, and 250,000 troops a month. This is a, this is a lot of people who are flooding into this fight. Uh, Pershing now has the capability of forming, uh, of forming his own independent army, field army. Uh, what would become First Army. 
Um, in the mix of this, uh, Marshall uh, would, you know, after his experience with the First Division and, and the initial fighting, and then they fight it at uh, a place called Soissons. Uh, but in, in Pershing is like, hey, I'm tired of being a staff officer. You know, I, I, I'm glad I've done well, but I know that in order to advance my career and in order to do what I want to do in this fight, which is lead troops in combat, I need a line command. Can I go to a regiment? Can I go to a brigade and take command there? Um, and this funny thing happens. He puts in this request, and multiple of his superiors, including Bullard, all talk about how great he is as an officer, and then they deny the request uh, for him to go to a line command. He's too good at his job. Um, this is an interesting foreshadowing for World War II, by the way, when when uh, they talk about him taking command in, at, for D-Day, uh, and, and he has his superiors once again say he's too good for his job. In this case, it's the President of the United States. Franklin Roosevelt, I can't spare you uh, to go over there. Uh, but it's the same kind of idea. He's so good th as a staff officer, and we have so few who are, no one is as good as him at this. So we need to find, you know, I, I, he should absolutely be promoted, but we can't make him a, we can't put him in charge of a line unit because it'll be a waste. We have other people who can do that. Uh, but we have very few people who can do what he can do in, in terms of a staff. So what ends up happening is that he goes to the uh, American Expeditionary Forces General Headquarters uh, in the operations section there. So it's still a, a G3 under Fox Connor. Uh, and then he becomes this kind of free agent uh, operations officer who bounces back and forth when First Army is created in, in August, formally, end of July, August of 1918. He ends up kind of bouncing back and forth as a G3 officer for, for both the AF and for First Army. So certainly he was frustrated by not being able to get his combat command, uh, but did he, did he take pride in being a good staff officer? You know, I would think that uh, George C. Marshall would say that pride is a sin, uh, and, and so the pride he took in it uh, was very much, I think he took pride in being, being a very good teammate. I think I, think I would say it that way. Um, more than he did about how good he, he, he clearly was ambitious and smart and, and good about those things, but uh, good about his, good at his job, no doubt about all of that. Um, but I think part of what he saw as important about his job was being a good teammate, and that would not involve tooting his own horn. Um, there's kind of one sort of exception, uh, which we can talk about here in, in a minute, uh, uh, at the Meuse Argonne, the movement to the Meuse Argonne, but um, by and large, I think he was, you know, can't emphasize enough how much of this required a team effort. As good as he was, he needed to work with other people, especially when they got to the higher levels. Uh, you can maybe get the idea that there's a, a G3 officer, but even the idea that he's having to bounce around, he's not the only one. Uh, one of his, his friends and colleagues, a guy named Walter Grant, is kind of with him going back and forth between uh, the General Headquarters uh, operations staff and then also on the First Army one. So, um, because they needed people. They needed people who to deal with all of the problems. They're, they're so vast, it's, it's, it's almost beggars the imagination of what they were trying to accomplish uh, in, you know, in, in World War I on the Western Front. Now, one of the big operations that, that would uh, happen after he goes to the uh, GHQ is the San Mihal operation. Can you talk about that, and what was his role in planning that? Yeah, so this is a, this is a great one. So um, because of the German, because of the counteroffensives, which drive back all the German advances uh, of the spring of 1918, are all stopped and then driven back over the summer of 1918. And this, uh, Americans have a, a, a key role in all of this. Um, it's often kind of forgotten. We kind of leave uh, that out of the story. But yeah, there's a lot of fighting that goes on. Uh, regardless, the Germans are kind of fairly clearly at the end of their tether. They have to fall back to what is called the Hindenburg Line. Um, it's a 
that's sort of a misnomer. Hindenburg line uh, is, a, is, a, is a line of defenses in depth. It's basically consists of four lines. Um, and it sort of spreads all along the Western Front. They're very well developed. They've used all the lessons of the war to set up this defense in depth uh, to, to try to hold, sort of hold their ground. And then uh, if they can blunt further uh, Allied attacks, uh, then maybe they can negotiate a peace to this. It's sort of favorable, and they can keep uh, what they were after in the first place in World War I. Um, now, uh, what happens is that Ferdinand Foch, as the overall commander, sees an opportunity in the summer of 1918. Remember, we said that, that the Americans had always envisioned that 1919 would be when the big effort happened. But because the Germans had so uh, exhausted themselves and because of the effectiveness of the counterattacks in the summer of 1918, Foch sees an opportunity and says, I want to launch a general offensive. And now he has the authority to kind of order this. Uh, and the Americans say, right on, we're in on that too. And Pershing says, and now I have a first army that can, be, that can contribute to this. And the Americans from day one, when they look at the Western Front, they see an opportunity uh, in, in uh, the Alsace-Lorraine area, Lorraine-Alsace area of the Western Front. This is the area, kind of, it's kind of a backwater of France. It's only famous because of really of World War I. Uh, sort of in the middle of this is Verdun. Uh, the famous place where the, the, the French had, had held the line, uh, they shall not pass, um, and stopped the Germans from taking um, Verdun. Uh, just south of Verdun is a salient in the line, a big a bulge in the line called, uh, the, the, the tip of it is the town of San Miel, um, and it's, it's sort of like a V-shaped, a triangle-shaped uh, bulge in the line. And the Americans say, hey, like this is a good place for us to to fight. We can go take this fight on here. The French hadn't been able to reduce the, the salient. The Americans say this is a good spot for us, and it also allows an opportunity for us to attack some key strategic areas for the Germans uh, on the Western Front. And if we are able to attack there, we can, we can follow up that attack and drive into uh, sort of the southern route into Germany, into Germany proper. Um, and so the Americans have this, from the very beginning, this is their kind of idea. Uh, when I say this very beginning, I mean in 1917 when they first surveyed the front, Fox Connor included. Um, and now they have their opportunity. They say, okay, well, let's do this at San Miel. Uh, we'll, we'll start the fight there. So they start the planning for this. And George C. Marshall ends up, this is where he's kind of a free agent bouncing back and forth. Uh, he goes and helps out the fir First Army. Now, First Army is, uh, interestingly, First Army is commanded by John Pershing. He's also the commander of the overall AEF. So he's kind of wearing two hats uh, at the same time. Uh, his chief of staff for First Army is a guy named Hugh Drum, who's often forgotten, but is, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a fort named after him in New York, but, uh, but otherwise people don't really remember Hugh Drum, but he's very, very good as a commander. There's a reason why he's, uh, him, him and Marshall work together very well. Um, anyway, in any case, Marshall and Walter Grant are put on the planning effort for San Miel by Connor and Drum kind of working together, and they come up with this big plan to sort of pinch off the salient. So they don't attack the point of it, they attack uh, two sides of it, and they come up with this big idea about how to do this. Uh, this is another case where Marshall uh, ends up in a bit of a fight with Pershing uh, about this, uh, because him and Grant really want a very extensive, a 14-hour artillery preparation before they launch this attack. Uh, some people say, hey, we need surprise more than we need uh, the, this big artillery preparation. And they say, do very limited attack. Um, Pershing settles on four hours as the, as the bombardment. Marshall thinks it's a mistake. Pershing's right. It ends up going pretty well. Uh, it ends up going really well for the Americans. Uh, this starts in, uh, it's, it's uh, September 12th of 1918. Uh, they launch this attack. The Germans, uh, this is kind of another sort of myth, uh, hadn't exactly decided to abandon. They, had, they were sort of, they had an idea that they might leave the salient. And as it happens, um, the plan for leaving the salient if they're attacked is sort of half put into, 
into uh, into play. Uh, but then uh, the German commanders say, you need to hold and fight them here. We can't let this happen. Uh, and so the Americans ended up capturing uh, tens of thousands of, of German troops, uh, which is not an indication the Germans were leaving uh, in, in any sort of hurry. Uh, it goes very, very well in a matter of a few days. And it goes, it goes very, very well. And they are able to reduce the Samuel salient, flatten it out. And then there's some people who say, hey, we should continue this fight. But then other events intercede. So as, as this fight is going on, he starts to shift his attention to another operation starts to planning a, a big movement of troops where in his memoir he says my final conclusion was that this order represented my best contribution to the war uh, what was the Meuse-Argonne offensive and what was his role in planning this movement okay so this is the, this is his bit of pride right this is this is probably his one example of of, of pride in this and um, and it, it needs a little bit of explaining. So even before they actually launch the attacks, they had done all of the planning, they put the effort into place, they moved the troops to San Miel uh, and, and try to do it in, in as secret as possible. Um, that it doesn't, it, it goes okay for San Miel. Uh, they do some deception operations and things uh, to distract the Germans. But in the midst of all of this big complicated effort, uh, three American corps, a French corps, uh, part of this fight, uh, yeah, Hugh Drum meets with Hugh Drum, the, the, first, uh, the first Army Chief of Staff, meets with uh, Marshall on September 8th. And he gets, goes with his staff, meets with them on September 8th. So this is four days before uh, the attack is about to, to launch for San Miel on September 12th. And he tells them, hey, I know that our plan was to reduce the San Miel salient and then, and then start uh, driving, towards in, into, uh, driving east towards into Europe. However, uh, General Foch, or for Marshal Foch, for Marshal Foch met with General Pershing and they decided they wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, Foch wanted the, the, the problem with the American attack east uh, from, from Foch's perspective, and you can kind of understand this if you look at a map. The Western Front at this point, there's this big kind of bulge that goes, from, that goes uh, west from Verdun, and it heads, uh, you know, heads out over the, uh, across the Argonne Forest and then up and then turns north and heads towards the channel. Right, so you kind of think of it as like a shelf, almost. Um, this bulge in the line. And Foch says, hey, if you Americans attack the way you're, you're planning on attacking, you're kind of attacking away from where the rest of this general offensive is going to go. I want us, everybody to be doing concentric attacks. Everybody's sort of attacking towards a common middle. Uh, and so he suggests, uh, and then eventually comes to an agreement with Pershing that turns into an order that the Americans, that the Americans attack north. Now he he tries to incorporate the Americans back into a French into a French army, and Pershing tells him that's that's a no go. Um, I'm going to keep an independent first army, um, and so Pershing tells him, "Hey, you know what we can do? We can do that attack north." And so, you know, so they're very close to each other, San Miel and, and the Meuse Argonne. So the, the the way the Meuse Argonne works is the Meuse is is the eastern boundary, the Argonne Forest, which is better th thought of as like a mountain range. And for us here in uh, central Pennsylvania, it's not all that different from South Mountain or North Mountain, Blue Mountain kind of range. It kind of looks like that. Uh, it's pretty similar, although more broken. Um, uh, heavily wooded, difficult area to fight in. So the Americans say, hey, we'll go over there and we'll do this fight. The problem is that Foch says, okay, well, I want it by the end of September. The Americans say, well, aren't we attacking at San Miel here? That's, that's like three weeks after, two weeks, two and a half weeks after we're launching this attack at San Miel. And he goes, yes, that's right. And they go, okay. So Hugh Drum goes and meets with Marshall on September 8th and tells him, hey, we need to, we're going to need to start moving our forces from San Miel, some of our forces from San Miel to uh, the Meuse-Argonne front. It means sort of like a 90-degree turn and then head you know, you know, uh, 30 miles north to go to, uh, to, to Meuse-Argonne, and we need to do it in secret. 
Uh, Marshall sort of famously gets this thing, he says, I can't think of an example in, in military history where you're about to launch a major offensive, and it's our first one, is First Army, and you're being told that you need to move troops for, uh, you need to start moving troops to it for another offensive at this close of a time right after it. Um, and some of those troops are gonna have to start moving almost as soon as they start the fight in San Miel, within a day of starting the fight at San Miel, uh, particularly artillery. Um, and Marshall has this great story in there about uh, how this upsets his equilibrium. Uh, and he kind of wanders around the headquarters and, and goes out for a walk and tries to figure out what to do about it. And he goes off and sits on a canal and stares at this canal for a while, sitting next to a French fisherman who's, who's, who's just throwing, he's got an old man who's got his line in the water at this canal. And he finally decides, oh, I just have to do it, get after this. And after thinking about it a little bit, and he goes back to his office and starts writing. Uh, and he says it's, it's just kind of his proudest um, I think he actually saves it and puts it in his members. It's, one, it's the one order he brings home with him and saves for himself. And it's the start of this vast movement. Um, and it works, right? It's this crazy thing, it works. I had no idea that San Miguel would go as well as it did. No idea they could do something like this, move, move an army uh, that, that's in a fight, move or large portions of an army, including the headquarters, uh, over to another fight in another, in another direction. Um, you know, as you're in the middle of the, your first fight. It's, it's crazy. Um, now, the, the interesting thing, this is where the pride part kind of comes into this. Um, he gives the order to, he gives his, his order to Drum. Drum shows it to Pershing. Pershing says it's great, and he comes back, he says, that's a dandy, you did a great job. Right, everybody knows, hey, we got the right guy to put the right guy on this. The interesting thing is, is that it's only a portion of the, of the movement to the Meuse Argonne. And this gets at the complexity and the teamwork of, of that is required in this. Um, that problem is actually given to multiple officers. Um, you, see, you see multiple names on this. Uh, one of the problems is, uh, that they have is, okay, so when we get there, we have to replace the French troops that are already in the line in this spot, in, in the Meuse-Argonne area, uh, where they had been since 1915. And so they put another officer in charge of that. Another issue is that, you know, frankly, the majority of these troops that are involved in the fight in, in San Miel, they're not gonna be able to, they're gonna have to keep fighting in San Miel for a while. They're not gonna be able to make it uh, over to, over to the Meuse-Argonne area. Uh, so they have to bring in, you know, a whole bunch of divisions from other areas on the western, all, across, all along the western front. And there's another officer put in charge of that. Uh, so at the end of the war, uh, Marshall ends up getting a lot of credit for this. And historically, he's gotten a lot, you know, all of the credit for this. And he wouldn't have even said he did all of it. Um, he did a large portion of it. He had an extremely difficult portion of it. Um, you guys think about the lines were all going east, you know, uh, going uh, west to east to go to the San Miguel, and then he has to go south to north. Uh, think about the, the, the traffic jams that would happen there, and there aren't very good roads uh, in this area of the fight. So he does an amazing job, um, but he doesn't do it alone, and I don't think he would say he did it alone, but it, you know, it's kind of in the historical record, it sort of has come off as that he did this all by himself, but that's, I think, a misunderstanding of, of, of the nature of modern warfare. Nobody's doing any of this stuff alone. It requires the effort of a huge team, and Marshall's very good at, at getting the team together. So uh, at this point, he's been proving himself throughout bigger and bigger operations and you know, larger staff problems and challenges. Uh, eventually the war does come to an end, November 11th, 1918, uh, the armistice is signed. Uh, where is he at that point? Did he, I mentioned at the beginning that he finishes as a colonel. Uh, was he happy with where he ended up? Okay, so wh where he ends up is uh, the Meuse-Argonne goes so we have to kind of back up into the Meuse-Argonne a little bit to sort of describe. He's an assistant in the operations office, in the operations uh, section um, at the start of the Meuse-Argonne. So he's formally in First Army 
now he's there permanently. He's not in, not working for Fox Connor, the general headquarters. Um, the Musargon starts off very, very well, the attack. It's, they, they pull off the surprise. They overrun the first lines. But remember I said the Germans are in this, have this defense in depth set up. Uh, the problem that the Germans see, one of the reasons why they want to have the attack, the Americans and the French want to have the attack through the Meuse-Argonne area, and it's a joint uh, or combined French and American attack, is that they're trying to get to the rail line that runs, one of the two rail lines that one runs to the Western Front uh, in the area, in the region of Sedan, uh, the famous city of Sedan uh, uh, from, the, from the Franco-Prussian War. Um, the Germans know that that's important. The terrain is terrible uh, for an attacker. It's very good for a defender. The Germans build up their defenses in depth as best they can in this area, and it's, it's a brutal fight. It's like a 13-mile deep um, uh, uh, defensive positions uh, with the famous sort of Hindenburg line, kind of the second to last of the lines in this, uh, but the most well-developed. It's important, too, to think about the Meuse-Argonne. I think most Americans think of World War I. They think of, they have an image that's a very British image. It looks like Flanders Fields. These very sort of you know, stripped out flat ground with uh, these trenches and there's rats and it's, it's, they're flooded and somebody blows a whistle and people come out of the trenches. It's not exactly like that in the Meuse-Argonne. The first line is kind of like that, uh, but it's much more hilly. There's, there, there's these, uh, these hilly, rocky uh, sort of hills and, and there's mountains and the, the, the Argonne itself is basically a mountain range. Um, and then the defensive positions aren't the sort of trenches the way we think of them. They're more like uh, interconnected foxholes is a better way to kind of think about it. Lots of artillery positions that are already dialed in to, to where they're attacking. The American attack goes very well at first, uh, but keep in mind, they use all their experienced troops at San Miel, and those guys that marshal moves, uh, they're, the, they're coming in to be in reserve, by and large. Uh, most of those guys can be reserved. That means we're putting in inexperienced troops in the front line, and they had the exact problem that they were worried about when they came up with this, which is why they wanted to wait until 1918, which is that the guys get through the trenches, they follow the very rigid orders for, to get through the first trenches, and then they don't know what to do when they get out into the fight. So it turns into a bit of a slog. Uh, keep in mind at this point, too, that, and I, I feel like we can't get through this without mentioning that um, if the Germans had used the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu, the flu of 1918, which is very famous these days because of our own pandemic issues, uh, if the Germans had used that as a, as a weapon of war, they couldn't have done it better. They didn't, but they couldn't have done it better than what happened to the Americans. If you look at the American casualties from the flu, they peak in October of 1918. A massive problem uh, for the for, for First Army and Marshall's part of dealing with all of this. Uh, in any event, uh, Pershing becomes overloaded with the problem of dealing with First Army and being the, uh, the AF commander. He turns over command of First Army. They create a second army, put Bullard in command of that. He turns over command of First Army in October to Hunter Liggett, a terribly wrongly forgotten American uh, great field commander. Uh, and then Hunter Liggett and Hugh Drum uh, elevate. They, they take the, 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 acting, the, the standing G3, they move him out to a, to a line command, and they elevate George C. Marshall to being the G3. The, the, the key operations, the head operations officer for uh, First Army, which is the position he's in at the, at the time of the armistice. And he gets, the, he gets First Army, he helps contribute to First Army running really, really well. Uh, there's some key command changes that happen in this. Um, throughout October, they battle into the Hindenburg Line so they don't have, to, so they don't have the problem uh, for their final attack, which happens on November 1st, of having to fight into the trenches. They are already in them by, by November 1st. They do that by design. And so that in November 1st is an open warfare exercise. And it goes stunningly well. They're able to cut the German rail line at Sedan. The Germans sue for peace. And you get to the armistice. And George C. Marshall had a lot to do with all of that. Um, 
and it's a huge complicated problem that he's that he's a, a key part of throughout so uh, as he finishes up the war and at this point as you mentioned at the beginning promotions come to a stop he's uh, finds himself in a particular position uh, does he does he kind of appreciate what he has just experienced or will it take time for him to look back and see the value of having been a staff officer during the war well, geez, I don't think he, I don't think he can't help he can't help but appreciate it because one of the things that they do after the war uh, as soon as as soon as they can after the armistice is try to capture sort of lessons learned uh, so he goes and gives a series of lectures uh, around to the troops I explained to everybody what's happening he works he helps work on the report of first army uh, he helps Hugh drum write the report of first army uh, so he immediately goes into kind of reflection about what they did uh, and then after the war he ends up writing the memoir which he never wanted published and tried to destroy all of the copies of and then we happily found him uh, uh, in the family records uh, later on I think not until the 70s I believe that they actually found the, the memoirs uh, which has been a great uh, boon to historians to, to get his story in there so no I think he had a, I think he had a pretty good idea of, of what he had uh, of what he had done although and everyone around him had a good idea and I mean, maybe the best evidence for this is that uh, Pershing, you know, eventually offers him to become his aide de camp um, after the war, which he ends up being his aide de camp uh, from from 1919 until what 1924 or something like that. That he's there for a long time is, is, and becomes a, a close uh, sort of advisor, which gives him all kinds of experience. And maybe that's a maybe that's a good place to sort of sum this up with with George C. Marshall. Uh, like I said, it, you know, what his accomplishments in the war. You know, deserve historical recognition you know on their own uh, and you know because he became what he became we can we're, we're doing this exercise now and trying to figure this out I, I think we could still write a book about somebody could still write a book about George C. Marshall in World War One a whole book and 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 show a lot um, but it, you know it, it helps maybe answer this question how a guy who uh, in his career never really had command of, of large line formations um, you know, he'd get some some lower level commands throughout his career, but he never had command of a division, never commanded a corps, never commanded a field army himself. Um, but he had experience with all of that, right? You know, he he, he understood, you know, by writing, by working on the the uh, the, the tactical problems, by uh, you know that he did at first army and doing the training at the our first division. I mean, uh, by doing the training at the lower levels with those guys, he you know he he had good experience with that. Um, by working his way up and seeing all of the problems of, of armies on command and incorporating all of the different assets, artillery, air power, medical, um, logistics, all of those things in there, he could see the, uh, you know, he had, he had learned something about, about that. Uh, by being part of a coalition and working with the French and the British to a lesser degree, but with the French a lot, you know, he saw the importance of being able to do that. By Getting into the, some of the debates about uh, lack of preparedness and and tr their attempts to redress that after the war, uh, as an aide de camp for Pershing, which was big, Pershing's big issue as the um, eventual chief of staff of the army. You know, he saw all of the you know necessary uh, uh, requirements of, of of a war department at war. So this is a great example of a guy who went through every level, you know, and maybe he didn't have command. Uh, and you know, along the way, and you know, all evidence indicates he probably would have been pretty good at it. Um, but he did have experience at every level, and he really had a good idea of how the entire sort of how an entire modern war effort worked. And I think that really came out of his World War One experience, and no doubt had an influence on his ability to to uh, be a chief of staff of the army later in war. Well, we've been speaking with Tom Persino, who's an associate professor of history at the Army War College. Thank you for joining me. Thank you.
Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.